From the Rothermere American Institute in Oxford, this is The Last Best Hope, a podcast that looks at America from the outside in. I'm Adam Smith. So I'm here at the British Library in London at their Breaking the News exhibition, and I'm with Tamara Tubb, who is one of the curators. Tamara, what are we looking at here? So here we have the now infamous photo of Donald Trump's inauguration uh, in January 2017. Uh, It's been blown up large on the wall here. This picture, compared to the picture taken from the same place eight years earlier of Obama's first inauguration, proved, or so it would seem, categorically proved that more people had come to Obama's inauguration in 2009 than to Trump's in 2017. So remind us, what was the response of the Trump's press secretary, the first of, I think, four press secretaries, Sean Spicer? Sean Spicer came out, gave his press briefing, all guns blazing, completely refuting the fact that Obama had a larger audience. This was the largest audience to ever witness an inauguration, period both in person and around the globe. In his first ever official White House briefing, Press Secretary Sean Spicer accused journalists of deliberately false reporting, of lying to undermine the president. These attempts to lessen the enthusiasm of the inauguration are shameful and wrong. Why put him out there for the very first time in front of that podium to utter a provable falsehood. The following day, Kellyanne Conway, Trump's campaign strategist, defended Spicer's statement in a Meet the Press interview with Chuck Todd. You're saying it's a falsehood, and they're giving Sean Spicer, our press secretary, gave alternative facts to that. Wait a minute. Alternative facts? Look, alternative facts are not facts. They're falsehoods. That false assertion that Trump drew the biggest inauguration crowd ever was the original sin of the Trump presidency, which culminated in his election denialism. And Conway's phrase, alternative facts, went viral, becoming something of a slogan for the era. It's written in large yellow letters on the wall of the British Library's Breaking the News exhibition. I mean, has it become an inescapable, necessary function of democratic governments, that they have to create their own version of reality? Was she just pulling back the curtain there and stating what, in fact, democratic governments, even democratic governments, always do? In one sense, of course, all politicians need to create a reality. They need to use words and images to get the public to believe in the policy they want to pursue. That's not the same thing as saying, however, that there are two different sets of facts. But here's the thing. If American government is, in theory, based on the consent of the governed, then there's always been a strong incentive, maybe even a responsibility, for those in power to actively seek that consent. In a democracy, public opinion clearly matters. Our government rests in public opinion, Abraham Lincoln once said. But what is public opinion? How does anyone know what it is? How does it come about? Abraham Lincoln knew that the only way the North could win the Civil War was if the Northern public thought it was a fight worth having. And if winning the war was essential to the survival of the last best hope of Earth, of government of, by and for the people, 
then surely it was his moral responsibility to ensure that public opinion remained on side by whatever means necessary. If democratic governments need to shape public opinion in normal circumstances, in a war for survival, it seems essential. And what, in the end, is the difference between shaping public opinion, as I just delicately put it, and propaganda? So, joining me today to talk about democratic governments and propaganda are John Maxwell Hamilton, a journalist and author, professor of journalism at the LSU Manship School of Mass Communication and the author of Manipulating the Masses, Woodrow Wilson and the Birth of American Propaganda. And also by Joe Fox, Professor of History and Pro-Vice-Chancellor at the University of London and an expert on propaganda and public opinion. To a large extent, and this is a, not just a Trump problem, but a, but a Trump problem, uh, is that Trump had kind of a salesman's way of operating, which is, this will be the best car you ever got, you'll look really good in that suit, this office building will be perfect for you and you're going to make a lot of money. When you, sell, when you learn to sell that way on people's hopes and aspirations and you're aggrandizing your product, in this case himself, uh, he glommed onto that as a way to propagandize himself. And I think a lot of people understand it that way because truth has become unhinged to some extent. Joe, you're a historian of propaganda. Propaganda is a morally loaded term, isn't it? I mean, it's a negative thing, propaganda. Isn't, is propaganda one of those things that other people do and you never do yourself? Well, it's become that. And the, the, the word has changed over the years. And of course, propaganda as a term becomes has always been loaded in a way, even if you, you take it back to its origins. But it's really in the aftermath of the First World War that, that democracies start to have an overt reaction to that word. Propaganda becomes associated with what seemed to be disreputable means of persuading masses, the people, to go and fight, to go to war. And then that term becomes polarised. If you think what happens globally with the word propaganda in that interwar period, it's really fascinating. The democracies have a negative reaction to it. It becomes tainted that democracies don't do propaganda. We are, we are about truth. Uh, we, we don't do that. We've learned from what we did in the First World War and they actively move away from it. But look what happens with the dictatorships. They have a very different experience of what propaganda means in the First World War. To Hitler, for example, this becomes part of the stab in the back myth. This is why, why the, the troops never lost in the field. They were hypnotized by a, as a rabbit is by a snake. This is something that we need to embrace. This is something that we need to actively do. What's important about the First World War is that it was the first time there was systematic, pervasive, sustained government propaganda. There's always been government propaganda. When Richard III is crowned, you know, he brings in chains some odious minister to show people that not only is he wearing an ermine robe, a great piece of propaganda, but this guy is somebody who's not liked, and look what I'm going to do to people who have made your life difficult. Making an example out of this person, which making an example out of people can be good propaganda from the point of view of the propagandist. But I would say it a slightly different way, too, because World War One, if World War One hadn't existed, all the techniques of propaganda would have materialized. They just wouldn't have done it as quickly 
uh, under the pressure cooker that existed during the war. And the reasons for that are you have, uh, in every country that was involved in the war, you began to have a much greater level of literacy, many more publications. And then as a result of that, people began to get ideas of their own. And the reaction by governments to that was, how do we then help shape that opinion? Whether it was Germany or Britain or France, they all use film. They all use cartoons. And they also told truths that were convenient to, to their argument. But the war accelerated the process. Joe, how much of this story about the First World War as a moment where the propaganda by governments became something more systematic and more sustained and more self-conscious, how much is that to do with new technology? It, it is part of the story. It's the first time that film starts to be used for these kinds of purposes. The way it's distributed, the way information starts to move, and transnationally too, if you think about the export of film. It, it, it's really the moment where the mass media comes of age in that crisis, crisis moment. But I think each time we have a crisis or a panic about propaganda, we reach for technology. It, it's to do with technology. In, in some ways, we do it now over social media. Sort of blaming the technology yeah, because it's a kind saying, of frightening new thing yeah. that creates new problems and issues. Yeah. So there were new technologies available to the Woodrow Wilson administration when the United States entered the First World War in 1917 that hadn't been available to Lincoln half a century earlier. But it's, it's the bureaucratic innovation that's the key thing here, the creation of this committee for public information. Is right. that the real innovation from the federal government's point of view? So the Committee on Public Information is the only or was the only ministry of propaganda the United States ever had. What the CPI did was it had tremendous energy uh, under a leader who, who was, to some extent, uh, charismatic and also very creative. The so you're, you're talking here about George Creel. Right. So tell, tell, us, tell us about George Creel and who he was, what kind of man he was, and how he ended up being in charge of the CPI, the Committee on Public Information. He was a pyrotechnic journalist who was a muckraker, and he was once police commissioner for a while in Denver and was thrown out of office because he was attacking all of his fellow commissioners, while at the same time writing about himself in the local newspaper. He early on supported Woodrow Wilson. He did not participate in the campaign in 1912, but in 1916 he did campaign for Wilson. He was the number two person in the publicity bureau of the National Democratic Committee, which I argue was crucial to Wilson's winning. He was the man who kept us out of the war. Right. And of course, there's, there's, a lot, there's a lot to be said about that campaign slogan, which was very potent. It was, a, it was a snappy slogan that summed up Wilson's pitch, ironically, as it turned out, since, of course, not only had he been, was he, you know, shortly after being inaugurated for his second term, he took the United States into the First World War. But the origins of government propaganda in the Wilson administration come from that campaign. The techniques used in that campaign were, camp, were, were ones that were expropriated to the larger campaign to support the war. Uh, the people were often the same people. And the overlap between what happened in the 1916 campaign and the way the war was prosecuted is uh, pointed. 
So when the United States then entered the war in, in 1917, and, he, and Wilson then creates the CPI, as you've described, and he puts this guy, Creel, he plucks him from his election campaign and puts him in charge, and he's a colourful character, let's say, and you've talked about his past as a journalist, but also as an elected official himself, and he came from a progressive background, so he wanted to change things and reform things, and... So Creel is part of the story, but Wilson is part of the story too. I mean, what does it say about Wilson as a politician, as a leader, that Wilson immediately recognised the necessity, as he saw it, of having a government propaganda ministry in 1917 in the United States? Well, interestingly for your audience... I think the form of government that Wilson really liked was the British form of government, where when you were elected, you didn't have uh, a divided, potentially divided Congress. And, uh, of course, he didn't have that, but he behaved in many cases as if he did, and the war allowed him to do that in the sense that people were trying to be patriotic, even though the Republicans were angry with him. And, and of course, when they won both the House and the Senate back, right when the war ended, they... Uh, made life very difficult for him. But his, his view is, was not just his view. It speaks to a larger, larger view by progressives who use the word publicity in a very positive way. In the way that Jeremy Bentham would talk about, publicity is a way to shed light on the way government operates. Publicity is the, is the positive flip side of propaganda. Right. And so he had Creel start a newspaper that was, appeared six days a week. They pumped out press releases in a way that was unprecedented. And so as a result of that, Wilson saw himself as not only getting the public to think, but to think in the right way, which is pretty much a direct quote from what he said. Unfortunately, two things happened. One is all these publicists, in the old-fashioned muckraking sense of the term, now found themselves in government. So instead of criticizing government, they now saw themselves as devoted to clarifying ideas for the public. And but they saw this in a very high-minded way. I mean, so, so the manoeuvre here is simply that it's the government doing this. These people are on the government payroll. Actually, many of them were doing it voluntarily, but that's by the by. I mean, this was a, it was an officially organised government thing. Um, but they were what Wilson was doing, what Creel was doing, was bringing into government people who had spent 20 years devoting themselves to the idea that the public should be educated and informed. Right, and making and, and selecting the facts that they ought to get. But good people ended up doing bad things because they, they were so interested in winning the war and keeping the public in line in that regard that they were willing to look at the ends rather than the democratic means. If you are trying to save democracy, and you have to put yourself in that mindset of what the democracies thought they were up against, Prussian militarism, barbarism, the, the, the um, ignorance of the rule of law. I mean, the, you, you need to throw what you've got at it. So in, in the democracies in the, in the interwar period, there's a division between those who associate propaganda with, with control, with control behind the scenes, hidden control, and those who, who say, actually, we're more progressive about this. Propaganda itself is not the evil act. It's the use to which it's put. 
So we are confronting a mass media age. We can see what's happening with the dictatorships in Europe and we have to fight fire with fire. We need a new propaganda for democracy, a new propaganda that saves democracy. And we can have that. So you see a quite a stark polarisation of those debates. You see it in Germany, you see it in America, you see it in Britain. Interestingly, in Britain, they learn from the experience of the First World War. And they say the critical thing is not to blur our government overt propaganda and our black ops. You have two separate. So you can maintain that... So everybody, so, so, so everybody knows well, this is this is yeah. government information coming at us. But then, at the same time, quite you, separately, you are right. trying to influence the way people you, think. But, you so do black it ops under. is black ops is, is the full. So if you on... think of propaganda as being a mode of behaviour rather than whatever the truth is you're trying to yeah. advance, then the black ops is the propaganda, and the the rest of the stuff which is overt is that is it's publicity gov- that's publicity communications that's government information. government information so in the second world war the bbc the ministry of information that takes place over here and then your black ops and there anything goes that's your political warfare executive that's your rumor campaigns mm. your lies your false stations now what happens in the first world war that that distinction hasn't yet really been made and so jack what so what i mean good people doing bad things what were the bad things then that you see the committee of public information doing in the case of creel you can't take anything he ever says as being truthful in that sense he's rather like donald trump he just says whatever seems to be convenient for that argument in the case of the cpi they did very purposeful things not just creel but the whole staff that fence back information. One example being, they didn't use the term fake news, although that term was being used at that time. They used the term enemy talk. They even had a column called enemy talk. Now, sometimes the enemy talk would be something simple like, it's not true that when sweaters, when little old ladies knit sweaters and they get sent to France, somebody unravels them. You know, that's not true. But it would be something like, if you heard somebody say you shouldn't buy war bonds, don't listen to them, that's enemy talk. That's German spies all over the country who are infiltrating the way we talk, and we can't allow that. And on some very big issues, there wasn't an ability to ventilate the ideas, one being the fact that the war could have, they could have gone to a settled war rather than trying to prosecute it to the end, a problem that the British also encountered when Lord Lansdowne wanted to suggest that there ought to be some kind of mediation to end the war. Those are legitimate discussion points. And those were curbed. And as a result of that, I think that had a deleterious effect. And if I may say so, it gets you to that second problem, which is then when the war is over, people feel they've been abused. It's a good point, isn't it, Joe, that Jack's raising there. It's part of the business of propaganda uh, or whatever positive alternative term you want to use. It's not just putting out information. It's about suppressing information. Yeah, censorship. You know, that these things and, and these things are are difficult. There are times when you, you might legitimately censor information, your your D notices in in the Second World War to prevent panic, for example. That there are legitimate circumstances where you don't want the enemy to find things out. So you're always it's a very difficult line that government walks. You know, you want to mobilize your fighting and producing peoples. And for that you need powerful stories you need powerful narratives and and that that was certainly coming out of occupied belgium 
When the German army invaded Belgium in the autumn of 1914, what followed was the mass destruction of villages and the ravaging of the countryside. 100,000 Belgians lost their lives and nearly 1.5 million were displaced. Impoverished refugees fleeing in every direction told stories of civilians being bayoneted to death, killed with knives, having their arms lopped off or eyes pulled out, of women being raped and killed. Those stories, which began swirling around in the press, were soon being used by the British government as propaganda. In 1915, it published the Bryce Report, a compilation of German atrocities which was designed to make the case for war. This is a hardback book. It's got the sort of marbled pages and leather backed, and it's in very small print. A copy of the report is contained in the British Library's Breaking the News exhibition. I mean, we can see it's open at a page that says the treatment of women and children, but you had to be pretty committed to read through that. Well, actually, this was sold at a really cheap price so that individuals, and it was really open to the public, you could buy this. And if you wanted real confirmation, then you would buy the Bryce Report and you could go through it. But that, that's not the point of this, really. The point of this is that this was a kind of a, a source for all the stories that then were played out in different forms of media. So the press could pick up on stories that were contained in the Bryce report and and run with them and amplify them. And in fact, the stories contained in the report found their way into popular culture in all kinds of ways. There had been stories in the press already about the German treatment of Belgians. So what is this doing that those previous press reports had not done? Well, what this is doing is taking, seemingly taking eyewitness accounts from individuals who'd experienced German barbarism in Belgium and putting them seemingly impartially as, alongside one another. It's These more are authoritative it is. than something that appears in an ephemeral newspaper, it is, is it? That's the implication. And it's meant to be like that. It's meant to be an impartial, objective account, evidence. These are evidence of war crimes. Is it more authoritative because it's got the backing of the government? Well, it's got the backing of Bryce. And um, Bryce was a major establishment figure. That's right. And, and having, and particularly important, was his influence in the United States. He'd been the British ambassador to Washington. He was the author of a very influential book describing the United States called The American Commonwealth. He was, a, with some caveats, an admirer of the American Republican model. So... Tell us why that mattered, that it was his name attached to this. So if you think about the, one of the uses of a report like this is to make the global case for war. This wasn't just an internal UK document. This wasn't about persuading the British public. In fact, that work had been already ongoing for about a year. This was about making a global case, and specifically a case to the United States. It was important that propaganda be used to attempt to draw the United States into war. What better, then, than to use someone like Bryce to make that case. Because Bryce was already well-known in the United States, so he had some authority to Americans as well as in Britain. Quite so. And this is an establishment figure. This is someone who carries that gravitas. And that's what you needed for a report of this kind. And is everything in the report true? That's That's actually difficult to say. 
That's difficult to say. There's, there's a wonderful research that's been conducted on, on what happened in Belgium and the German troops' reaction. The German troops, of course, think that following the, um, the, the Franco-Prussian War of 1870-71 that they felt that they'd been under attack by guerrilla troops, the Franc-Tireurs. So they thought this was going to happen again in Belgium, so overreacted quite often, sort of the trigger reaction to this, so reacted quite brutally to local populations. Um, and so large sections of this are accurate, but there's also embellishment in here. There are things that are not, we can't verify. But Joe, in the end, did it matter to Lord Bryce whether the stuff in this report was true or not? Surely what mattered was that it created an impact, that it created a picture of the Germans as the baddies. Yeah. Well, this, this is what really mattered about this report at the time. This was really about both documenting what they thought was happening in Belgium, but also using that document within a broader narrative of German barbarity. Think about when this comes out. And this can stand as a testament to a lot of the acts that the British press had been reporting around this time. When you think about this period, the sinking of the Lusitania, the assassination of Edith Cavell, these, these atrocities in Belgian cities, I mean, all of these things, the beginning of the Zeppelin raid, the first use of poison gas, seemingly against the, the Hague conventions of war, all of these acts and every single act contained in the Bryce report can stand as a singular example of German barbarity. But together, when those stories collide, that really has an impact because it's the cumulative effect of that propaganda that, that really secures in people's minds the need to fight. You have to find that deep-seated just war narrative and collectively... That's what all these stories gave. And, Jack, this is a reminder that um, the Britain obviously entered the First World War in 1914. The United States didn't do so until April 1917. But there was a propaganda operation in support of the Allies in the United States from 1914 onwards, wasn't there? The, the British were running an operation in the US to try to persuade the Americans to enter the war. What was the relationship between that British propaganda effort and George Creel and the CPI? Well, in good American uh, fashion, Creel claimed that he did no propaganda. The first rule of propaganda is only the enemy does it. And he claimed that, therefore, they weren't like any of the countries in the old world, including Great Britain which was untrue because they went to the British for advice. And so was it the same, was, it, was he using them, was the CPI using the same techniques of, you know, Joe has described of, of, of first-person testimony? And You know, they didn't use first-person testimony that much. There were, uh, interestingly, there was one, uh, two large sets of drawings that had been prepared by someone, cartoons that were, that depicted the Huns in ways that were ghastly. And uh, 
Charles Masterman here in Great Britain didn't even want to publish them because he thought they were they went too far. But he was overruled and and got them published in the United States, and Creel was supportive of that. They had posters that, of course, showed you know the German with his hobnail boot on somebody's neck, that kind of thing. There's even one, a famous one, it's actually on the cover of my book, showing German planes bombing the Statue of Liberty and New York consumed by flames, which of course is preposterous. This was never even remotely possible. And of course that hurt, because later on when it comes time to have peace, it's pretty hard to say you're going to have a just peace when you've now painted these people as people who aren't worthy of a just peace. Mm. That's really interesting because that's exactly... During the Second World War, the British propagandists take the the clear decision that they're not going to do. They're not going to take that line for exactly that reason. How do we have a good peace? We cannot portray all Germans as being Nazis. We have to drive a wedge between good Germans and the Nazis. So they took a track in the propaganda to say, "We're we're going to use this as a a technique to drive a wedge between Nazis and the people, the government and the wider population. We're going to craft the Nazi versus the good German because Ministry of Information documents say, well, what do you do with all the Germans after the war if if what we're saying is that all Germans are bad Germans? We've got to have a good peace. So they use the experience of the First World War to inform the propaganda strategies of the second for exactly the reasons you were saying. Yeah, there was a lot of learning, wasn't there? And the, the CPI was not reconstructed even in 1941. I mean, it, 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 it wasn't, as we talked about, it, it didn't exist after the end of the First World War, but it wasn't recreated or it wasn't a similar thing recreated in when the United States went into the Second World War. There were ideas in the 1920s and 30s about creating a similar organization even in peacetime. But Creel had, had just been such, such a lightning rod that it wasn't practical. So he'd given... I mean, this is, the, the authority of the messenger really matters, doesn't it? I mean, we were talking... I mean, Joe was talking about you know, Lord, Lord Bryce, this authoritative figure. If Creel himself had become part of the story in a negative sense, if he was seen as a dodgy guy, basically, that undermined the credibility of the CPI as a whole. Is that what you're saying? Well, I think what it did was it, it excited animosities that didn't need to be excited. It alienated journalists whom they didn't need to alienate because the journalists were already on board. Uh, Members of Congress, Republicans in particular, who we could have worked with better. And so as a result of that, he just became a lightning rod. And then the committee, because he had so much power, he's one of the two or three most powerful people in Washington at that time, it elevated its, its profile in a way that it didn't need to be done. And so he was constantly being criticized, even being kind of a joke, a national joke. The term that came out of the war during the war was creeling. You know, he's creeling, you're, you're creeling. And that's not a good thing when the guy who's running your propaganda agency, his name becomes a byword for spinning. What I would argue is that if Creel had not gotten that job, there, was, there were two other candidates. Walter Lippmann wanted that job and worked very hard to get that job. Very, very hard. He would have been terrible at that job because he was a terrible manager and he was more interested in Walter Lippmann than he was in working as a team. So he would have been a bad choice. But Robert Woolley, who was very crafty and, and very creative, who had been the head of the, of the Publicity Bureau of the Democratic National Committee, he should have gotten that job. And if he had gotten that job, there's a good chance that the committee could have in some form hung on during the peace treaty. And that would have helped Wilson 
with propaganda at the time he needed it most. You mentioned Walter Littman there, who wrote a book called Public Opinion. He was a public intellectual. He was a public intellectual. He was a well-known figure. And Littman came out of the First World War, even though he hadn't got the Creel job, writing about his discovery that public, that public opinion can be manufactured. And that therefore, Littman concluded, um, the dogma of democracy that the people in some kind of pure Tocquevillian rational choice way can look at evidence and come up with some conclusion is just not tenable. It just doesn't work in a modern, complex, bureaucratized, corporatized society with a mass media. Joe, that was a pretty alarming recognition, wasn't it? I mean, because if that was the case, if you couldn't have confidence that ordinary people, in quotes, could make decisions properly for themselves and that there was this great power that was available to governments or to press barons or to whoever it was who's controlling the modes of communication. This is, I get this quote from you, from Aldous Huxley, the author of The Brave New World. So this is, I think, in the 1920s. And he he wrote that if a state propaganda organisation projects itself skillfully enough, the masses can always be relied upon to vote as their real rulers want them to vote. A really efficient propaganda, uh, Huxley said, could reduce most human beings to the condition of abject slavery. I mean, wow. Yeah, so this is Huxley. This is Huxley trying to prevent the establishment of a peacetime ministry of information because it's that collision between the the party political process and the state. These these things just simply cannot be allowed to happen. We cannot manipulate people in a democracy in any sense. Lippmann and others start a campaign to say, look, this is happening. The, The masses are malleable and we need a technocratic elite to guide them through. We need to mediate the media. We need someone to interpret all of this information for them in a mass media age and channel their attention. So it's such a subtle difference there, though, isn't it? <laughs> Between, you know, that's, that's the way Littman saw it, and that's yeah. also very Wilsonian, right? This is the progressive vision that you have this technocratic elite it's... who just sort everything out for people. No, you don't need to know that, but you do need to know that. But we're doing it on your behalf in order to make democracy work. We've got this, guys. You know, we're the ones who are able to mediate this complex, confusing exactly. world. Obviously, the other way of looking at all that is you're doing propaganda. Yeah, Huxley's worst nightmare. And, Joe, what is different today? I mean, you were talking earlier mm. about every time there's a new technology, yeah. there's a kind of moral panic about it. We're now at a moment where social media is that new technology that is creating anxiety. So is, yeah. this, oh, is there anything qualitatively different? I mean, people write about, you know, an epistemic crisis. Yeah. Are we in a post-truth world? I mean, yeah. it's all... I mean, some of this is pretty kind of strong stuff. You know, yeah. the claims being made are that we somehow, at some point in the last 20 years, crossed some kind of Rubicon into this world where nobody is ever again going to know whatever is going on. I mean, it's just all terribly, terribly scary. Should we all just calm down? Have we kind I think of been that, there that was the debate of the 20s. It's, it's very similar. The difference now is speed, scale, scope. 
and and who is able to use channels of, of mass communication. But in all of this noise, the one thing that we do always lose sight of is the fact that propaganda simply cannot work if it does cannot burrow down into the roots of people's pre-existing beliefs. And that's the issue that we seem to always sidestep. This is a very human behaviour to consume propaganda, to use propaganda. I mean, we, we do it and we do it all at scale because it satisfies some psychological need. And the reason we think it's a crisis at the minute is because we ourselves are polarised and the propaganda is working with those pre-existing beliefs, whatever they are, whether it's Remain, Brexit you know, left, right, whatever it is. And the propagandists ex- exist to exploit it. Now, that creates a really fertile ground for a bad actor to come in and really mess with it, not just mess with either side and take you down certain ways of thinking, as was the case in the Cold War, as ideologically driven, but mess with the whole fundamentals of democracy to create confusion, to sow confusion, so you don't know what to think, so your natural position is to gravitate towards your pre-existing beliefs. Perfect ground Mm. for serious damage to be caused by propaganda. It doesn't even have to be political. It can be about a health crisis, for example. And we've seen all of those divisions play out in the last two years. Mm. I was talking to Professors Joe Fox and John Maxwell Hamilton and also to Tamara Tubb, curator of the Breaking the News exhibition at the British Library. If we're in a world of alternative facts, the Last Best Hope podcast is here to shed the light of truth. But then I would say that, wouldn't I? The producer is Emily Williams and I'm Adam Smith. Goodbye. Goodbye.